0: And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a pile. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have... Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea.
1: Well, a very good evening. Uh, If we've not met before, uh, my name's John, I'm part of the church family here. It's great to see you all, and those online as well, great to be with you as well. Please keep that passage open, page 68. Uh, We'll be looking at that in a moment. Let's pray for God's help uh, as we look at His Word. Father, we thank you that you have the words of life. And we pray that you would speak your words into all our hearts and our minds this evening. Uh, We pray you would give us clarity. Uh, Particularly, we pray, Lord, you would help us to see the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, as we continue with this theme of praise, that it might help us to think how we look to you, give you thanks and honour you for all the good things you've done for us in your Son. So help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to begin with a quote, uh, which says this, Praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. By grace we learn to sing, and in glory we continue to sing. What will some of you do when you get to heaven if you go on grumbling all the way? Do not hope to get to heaven in that style, but now begin to bless the name of the Lord. Uh, this is a quote from the uh, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon and a wonderful uh, reminder of why we praise God and our attitude in praising him too. Now, as I said, we're going through this uh, series on prayer and uh, Last week, Nick took us through a sort of biblical theology uh, going from Genesis to Revelation to get a sort of sweep, uh, to get an idea of the theme of prayer through the Bible. And praise is very much part of this under the idea of prayer. And particularly what I want to think about from last week uh, and to remind us if we were here uh, is that Nick said that Christian prayer is our verbal fellowship with the personal God who by his word makes himself known. And praise is very much part of that vocal relationship with God. Uh, But it is perhaps our most uh, expressive or energetic, maybe melodious form of communication with him. Uh, Now, there are many things that we could consider when it comes to But today I want us to focus on the biblical themes that should be front and center. Uh, But along the way, I also want us to apply these themes in our our daily lives. And to do this, we're going to look at this passage that Hannah just read to us, Exodus 15. And one note just to start um, uh, is that this is a song. This is a song. Now, we can praise God in, in many ways, uh, out loud, in our heads, or on our own, or with others, spoken, sung. But as this is a song, it would be right that we particularly encourage that practice. So I want us to be thinking, where is it appropriate for you to sing God's praises every day? As you work with your children, perhaps after a meal? Uh, doing the, the chores around the house. Uh, maybe in the car, if you're going on holiday, perhaps. Think about some good Christian music, uh, particularly that is, I would say, Christ-centered music that you can sing along to, that honors the Lord. And a novel idea, if it's, if this floats your boat, I don't know, um, perhaps in the shower, if you like to do that kind of thing. Uh, someone in our family who who likes to do that quite a lot. Um, So have a think. What what might it look like to praise God for you in your circumstances? But I think it's also important to know that this is a corporate song. It's a song sung by the whole assembly of God's people, Israel. So there's something to be said about singing together, corporate worship. Uh, Nick has just said earlier, Uh, The the importance of being together physically, really important. And so it's good to be reminded while we sing on a Sunday, while we've just been singing. Now, we might think it's mainly just to help ourselves, and of course it does do that. But really we sing because it gives us a platform to praise God together. And as we do that, we encourage each other in the truths that we all believe in. It helps to build up God's family. And that was true of the Israelites. On the edge of the Red Sea, they sang a song of praise, encouraging each other as a response of their rescue by God. Now, the crossing of the Red Sea was the central moment of Israel's history. It was like the, the finale of God's great plan to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. And this event is so significant that it, constant, it is constantly referred to in the Bible, in the Scriptures. Now, I googled this Uh, idea, Uh, and one website gave me 87 verses that mention the rescue from Egypt. Uh, Not all of them come up in Exodus, uh, though many do come up in what we call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, There's frequent mention in the Psalms and the Prophets, and it's even quoted in the New Testament. In Matthew 2, when Jesus and his family flee to Egypt, it is quoted to fulfill the scripture, of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says this When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So you see, ultimately, this song it lands on the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Exodus narrative from slavery in Egypt to the journey to the promised land is perhaps the most complete foreshadowing. Of the gospel as Christians we have been rescued from our bondage to sin and are now in these last days traveling to the eternal promised land of heaven and this song it centers on those two themes it looks back to God's rescue and it looks forward to God's guidance to the land and with both these themes God is worthy of our praise. So we're going to look at those two sort of things, those two points. So here's the first thing for us this evening. We praise God because he is a warrior who saves his people. God is a warrior who saves his people. And this is kind of verse 1 to 12 in the passage. So let's read from verse 1. Now, most songs tell us a story. Uh, Some are perhaps more subtle and poignant than others. Uh, That is very obvious when we think of something like John Lennon's Imagine compared to the Crazy Frog tune, if you remember that. Absolute disaster. Um, Maybe you liked it, I don't know. Now, the uh, story of Exodus 15 is very clear, but it's certainly rich and vibrant in the detail. Because verse 1 tells us explicitly the story of this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, this is a refrain that gets repeated at the end, verse 21, if you spot that there, by Miriam, as she and the women respond. They grab the tambourines, they start dancing, because this is a song worth repeating and praising because of what God has done. This is a song about God's glorious triumph. His victory over his enemies and the salvation of his people. But here I think the emphasis is particularly on God's character. And perhaps the most intriguing description is verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. I guess it would be very easy to, to misunderstand such a description of God. And many might see God being a sort of, this is sort of being pro war, it's promoting war, isn't it? God is a, a man of war, like a sort of Viking berserker, modern day warlord who craves domination, bloodlust, and battle. But the phrase here is more apt in describing God as a great warrior who brings salvation, a hero. And I th- find it hard to actually think of historical examples uh, to help illustrate this. Perhaps you can tell me afterwards. Um, I always seem to go towards sort of fictional characters, and perhaps that's you know, one of the reasons why we don't have actually any many hi- historical people who who would say are, are particularly kind of great, great heroes, uh, and we're always looking for one, which is why we write them in a fictional way. So it might be someone like Tolkien's Aragorn. Or maybe a more modern example would be Black Panther. He is a a warrior king, as is Aragorn. Both are warrior kings who save their people. Of course, God is not fictional. He's real. And he is the Lord of War who saves his people. And as this great warrior, we see the power he has over his enemies. Verse 4 and 5, look down there. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea uh, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea the floods covered them they went down into the depths like a stone you see these verses are describing the fate of the Egyptian army now let me just go back a little bit just to explain some of the context of this story After letting Israel Israel go out of Egypt, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he decides to pursue them with his army, to pursue them to the Red Sea. And it seems like the Israelites have nowhere to go. They're caught between an army and a sea. And it seems like they're going to get trampled on by horse and chariot. But God parts the sea, allowing them to pass and the enemy follows but the waters come crashing down upon them and they are drowned in the floods and the song praises God's mighty rescue particularly he talks about the song talks about the Lord's hand by the Lord's right hand verse 6 and 12 this is a symbol of his awesome power and strength and might by his mighty hand he out, uh, stretches out and saves his people. Now, the language is so vivid here. God and creation are sort of almost intertwined at times. His nostrils and mouth are the wind. We see that verse 8 and 10. Uh, now, it's important to know that this isn't to say that God is his creation. No, he is very much separate, distinct from what he's created. But he commands it. He is Lord over it. And he uses it to carry out his rescue plan. Uh, Now, these Egyptians, I'm sure, for the Israelites, would have seemed terrifying. I mean, can you imagine an army coming upon you, this overwhelming force? Uh, In fact, the previous chapter recounts their fears and grumbles to Moses. You know, in their unbelief, they cry that they want to be back in the in Egypt, in slavery. Surely that would be better than what we've got now. But Moses tells them to not fear, to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And when the enemy comes up against God, Israel see his might and he destroys the Egyptians utterly. They become like a stone that sinks to the bottom of the sea. Uh, Now, if we have any sympathy for the Egyptians, uh, then I think we're told plainly enough in verse 9 that what God did here was a good thing. Verse 9 says, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You see, the enemy is bent on plunder. They want to satisfy their desires for bloodlust, murder, killing, perhaps other longings that we won't go into. Their thoughts are destruction. But God, as a man of war, this great warrior saves his people from that evil. You see, the hand of the enemy is no match for the hand of God. As Israel sings in verse 11, there is no one like him. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Of course, it's rhetorical, isn't it? No one is like God. No one. No one amongst these so-called gods. No one who can do what God can do. But friends, we see also this mighty warrior again, much later, at the cross. Because our Lord Jesus is the Lord of War, a man of war. And it's through his death that he has defeated his enemies. Not Egyptian armies, not a physical battle or war, but one that is to do with spiritual forces that are very real in this world. Let me read to you Colossians 2, verse 13 to 15. It says this, You see, the dark forces of this world, death, Satan, and sin, well, they have been disarmed, diffused. Jesus has triumphed over them. He has the victory over his enemies. So I want to encourage us to bring those truths into our praise of Christ. Not just to say that we've been saved, as good as it is to say that, but to, 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 to know that Jesus, our warrior, has gloriously triumphed over our enemies. I want us to know the wonderful depth and riches that the cross affords us to express our honour and thanks to God. So let me encourage you to do that in your corporate prayers, uh, perhaps your singing, your conversations, whatever it might be. see by doing so we will embolden each other in our salvation see god is a warrior who saves his people god is a warrior who saves his people that's the first point here's the second we praise god because he is a guide who delivers his people we praise god because he is a guide who delivers his people. Let's read from verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, uh, the word my youngest nephew is currently using the most at at the minute is the word why. Why? Um, probably, I think, better than the word no, but, you know, why is still a bit frustrating at times. Um, and I often get into a bit of a rabbit hole trying to kind of answer his why's, which is a bit my, my, my fault than his, really, because uh, I should know better. Uh, an example uh, would be that, you know, we're going to the shopping centre, the Glades, and uh, when we get out of the car, I, um, I'll say to him, look, when we get out of the car, you've got to hold my hand. And he'll say, why? And I'll say, I have to reply, well, because it's a car park, it it can be busy. Uh, Why? Well, there's lots of cars moving around. I I want to keep you safe, I don't want you to get hurt. Why? Uh, And then, of course, eventually you get to, well, what else can you say? Because I love you. Um, Now, why can really get to the heart of the matter? Why do I want to hold my nephew's hand? Well, ultimately, it is because I love him. And we can ask a why question of God with this passage. Why did God rescue Israel? And the answer is, well, ultimately, because he loved them. He loved them. Do you see that again, verse 13? You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. It is God's deep covenant, faithful affection for his people that moves him to save them. And Israel was right to acknowledge this and respond in praise. It's something we should do too. It is because God loves us that he sent his son to redeem us from sin. A great place to go is 1 John 4 verse 9 and 10 which says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So let's be encouraged to let the knowledge of God's love for us fill our hearts and shape our praise. Always give thanks for his steadfast love. That sent his son to redeem us from sin. But verse 13 tells us God's love doesn't just bring redemption. By his love, his people are guided home. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You see, the crossing of the Red Sea wasn't just about God helping the Israelites reach the other side safely. He was going to guide them to the land he'd promised to Israel's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's the land of Canaan. And this meant coming towards other enemies who were currently living in the land of Canaan. And the song reveals their response to God's mighty rescue. Verse 14 and 15, they all tremble as they hear what God has done. Philistia, Edom, Moab, and all the nations are seized by a paralyzing fear, a dread. When they come up against the Lord, they don't stand a chance. Again, we get a, another, a, similar, a theme repeated, they're like a stone, verse 16. But this time it's not one that sinks to the bottom, but just one that just stands there like a statue, unmoving, frozen in fear. You see, by his love, God will guide his people to Canaan. The nations will offer no resistance. They will be petrified knowing what the Lord has done. And this will be until the people have passed by and settled in the land. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. Uh, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Uh, there's a motto associated with the US Postal Service, uh, which says this, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. And so in a way it's a promise or oath that the mail will be delivered Uh, But we see verse 17 and 18, also like a promise. God's people will be delivered. But the good news is that God doesn't have to rely on the U.S. Postal Service. Probably a good thing. I imagine it's rather hard living up to that motto. God, however, is immeasurably more reliable. And by his mighty hand, he will guide his people and deliver them home. But I think what's more important here is the fact that these words are expressed by the Israelites from their point of view. You see, God has already promised what he will do. This is Israel's praise to God for those promises. As they see his mighty rescue, they sin with confidence of what God will do. Verse 17 again he will plant them on your mountain. Now this certainly has a partial fulfillment with the history of Israel. Uh, the mountain speaks of the hill of Zion in Jerusalem and the abode or the sanctuary is what is, would be the, the tabernacle uh, or, and later the temple. Uh, and these structures symbolize God's dwelling place, God dwelling with his people. And so one day Israel would reach the land and live with God. They would dwell together. That was their confidence. That was their hope. Uh, But I suspect that the mention of God's eternal reign in verse 18 tells us that these promises haven't had their final fulfillment The song points beyond the cross to the day when God's people will leave this world and arrive at God's eternal, holy mountain. And Jesus is the mailman, if you like, who will make that delivery. One day we will dwell in God's sanctuary with his son forever. Forever. Revelation 21 verse 3 says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see, we will live with Jesus in the new creation. But we're not there yet. So as we wait for that day, we should sing as Israel did. Praising with faithful and hopeful hearts that in his love for us, God will guide and deliver us home. We will be planted on the mountain forever. Now, as we begin to wrap up, I just want to give us a sort of final point, a final image. Now, this song is the first song in the Bible. But it's actually also the last song in the Bible, too. Because it's sung again in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, John's vision. And it comes up in chapter 15. It will come up on the screen. If you can't read that, maybe you'd like to turn there. Verses 2 and 3 say this. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands and they sing the song of Moses the servant of God the song of the Lamb. Friends, this final image is to encourage us God's people here are once again standing upon the edge of a sea. But it's not the Red Sea. Perhaps it's heaven itself. And the scene is a celebration. God's faithful sing a song of praise. It's the song of Moses. It also goes by another name, the song of the Lamb. They are the same song. And this is the song of the whole Bible. If you like, it's the soundtrack of the Bible, if we want to put it that way. It is the song of our redemption and our deliverance. It's the song of our salvation. It's a song that has been sung. It's a song that I think is being sung now, and it will be sung. And I think it's a song that we can join in together the song of the gospel the good news of jesus we can join in that chorus with those in heaven praising god for what he's done in his son christ has triumphed and he is guiding us to his eternal abode his sanctuary his dwelling place what wonderful news to praise god Pray that it would shape your prayers going forward. And as Spurgeon rightly said, when we looked at that quote at the beginning, let's begin to bless the name of the Lord. Let me close in prayer. this is my God and I will praise him. Father, we do want to thank you for who you are, our great warrior, our great guide, the one who defeats our enemies, the one who guides us home. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cost that it took to triumph, the sacrifice, as he died for us. But we thank you so much that those powers have been disarmed and we thank you now that we can look forward to that day when your son will return and we will live with you help us to praise your name at all times in all ways be an encouragement when we're together be uplifted when we're alone so help us we pray for your glory's sake And in Jesus' name, amen.